Roll for initiative. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Roll for Initiative podcast, uh, recording date of 11-2909. The time is 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I am your host, DM Vince, along with my faithful host, DM Jason. Jason, how you doing tonight? Hey, Vince, I'm doing great. Well, we have a great show for you tonight. Uh, Jason, why don't you take a quick second and tell everybody what this show is going to be about for uh, the new listener out there. All right, new listener, and that's everybody who's a new listener because <laughs> it's our first show. That's right. So... Roll for initiative. We're going to be the first edition AD&D podcast. We will touch on old school gaming in general and focusing specifically on the first edition of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. That's right, folks. Each week we'll bring you something new, something special. Uh, we'll have different little segments here and there, such as uh, a feature segment. We'll have our creature feature theater, which will look at a specific creature from first edition, explain how to throw it into your campaign. We'll look at some game mechanics. We have the Dragon's Horde. Uh, we have a stickler spotlight for the old gamer out there who's really you know into those rules. We have quite a few of those in the uh, community, Jason, right? A lot of fun with those. And I definitely join that group sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And then we have, um, we have our find of the week, which usually which we will scour the internet and find something on eBay or Amazon or someone selling something and we'll let you know about it. Craigslist, anywhere we have something that's cool. Because one of the things that's the biggest problem, if you're playing first edition and you don't have everything saved from the 80s, yeah. where are you going to get it? So we're going to go out and we're going to look for some of the cool stuff that's out there and give everybody a chance to go bid that thing up. And then finally, we have uh, what we're going to be calling the library section, uh, where we're going to look through what kind of books that influenced our games. What uh, you know, we might have some interviews with some past authors, things like Fun that. Fun stuff all around. Absolutely, we'll 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 look at uh, fiction that has influenced the creators of the game, as well as fiction that's come from influences from the creators of the game. Maybe some nonfiction like I'm going to talk about today and whatever people want us to talk about. So we'll be looking for anybody who's a listener to let us know what you'd like us to talk about as well. And speaking about if you want to uh, write us, which I'm sure right this moment you're like, oh, I'm going to write these guys because they're awesome. RFIstaff at gmail.com will be our official email address. Yes, and we will be setting up ways for people to call in and all of that, but give us a little time. Let us get it up and going for right now. Use the email address, and uh, we look forward to hearing your questions. We'll also be watching the forums as well. Well, as of right now, we don't have our website up, but we will have that up shortly with uh, some forums to look at. I think we'll be putting up yes. a tent. And we'll be putting up a tent pretty much in the, uh, the dragonsfoot.org forums for now. That's actually what I was thinking of. We'll def definitely be on Dragon's Foot, which is uh, one of the best resources you can possibly hope for when it comes to old school gaming. It's actually the best resource that I found out there, and I'm glad it's a nice little community, a lot of helpful people on there. I mean, they will go up, out on a limb to give you any information you want, first edition, second edition, and even basic D&D. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Somebody went in and posted a question yesterday. He got it in the wrong forum. And it was a weird one. His, he was starting to game again after 20 years, and his wife was like, okay, I'm going to try this out. I'm in the dungeon. All right, I'm going to skin this animal. Okay. And he went, what? <laughs> You're gonna, so he came to the forums, and he was looking for somebody to say, what do I want to do with the rules? And within a day, the, that discussion was just packed with people talking about it. It's an absolutely welcoming, great place. 
Excellent. You should try it. You can go to the forum, sign up. They have lots of resources, dragonsfoot.org. Now, uh, you're probably wondering, you're sitting here listening to this podcast going, yeah, okay, well, who are these two Yokos that I'm listening to? Well, obviously, I'm Vince. I live in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, there's uh, quite a bit of gaming that goes on in Pennsylvania, quite a big state. But I've been GMing, I shouldn't say GMing, DMing, oh, wow, 20-something years now. I've started playing Dungeons & Dragons when I was 13 years old and with the original box set. The red box, I should say. Red box, not the yeah. white box. Yeah, not the original white box. The red box, because uh, the white box, I probably wasn't even alive yet. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I was, yeah, but I wasn't playing that, because that probably would have been two. <laughs> and you're uh, you're out there in uh, Scranton, right? Well, that's the closest major town to me, Scranton. I'm actually in the Pittston area, but Scranton's the major gaming area that I'm in, in case anybody out there listening wants to get together and game. Uh, we I usually pop over to Adventureland Gaming and go over there and game. But I've been playing that. I played a bunch of other games for. I never really got into second edition D and D. I did get into third edition for a while, and then now I'm back into first edition, full force. And uh, I'm on the forums, and you can find me at Lord Nikon. Jason, tell well, us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my local gaming store here in New York City is the Complete Strategist, which is a store that has been around probably longer than I've been gaming. I went back and took a look at one of my uh, Dragon magazines, one of the first ones I ever bought, and let's date me now. It is from 1981. Oh, wow. And uh, there was an ad for the Complete Strategist in there, even then. <laughs> so uh, I'm in New York City, uh, down here on the Lower East Side. Uh, although I am originally from Iowa, which is where I started gaming, and I DM'd my first game in 1981. And like a lot of people, by the early 90s, I had left the hobby and I have returned in the past couple of years. So I only played first edition. Uh, mm-hmm. Second edition just didn't hold the uh, appeal for me when it came out. Not that there's anything wrong with second edition. We just both never really got into second edition, that's all. Exactly. That's all it is. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> and uh, I do actually game in a fourth edition game as well, although I don't run that because uh, I just consider it a different system. Very fun to play in, but uh, different system. Different, completely yeah. different thing. Fourth edition is a different beast in itself. Uh, there's nothing wrong with fourth edition. You should always anybody should just give it a try, just from once or twice. It's always it's worth it. I mean, you know, don't shoot it down just because it's something different. There, there's there's a ton of games out there, and the important thing is to be able to get together with your friends, have fun in person, and just enjoy the hobby. Okay, let's move on over to our uh, feature for everybody. Uh, it's called Old School versus New School Gaming. Uh, a little, uh, basically, you can get this PDF uh, download. Uh, do you have the link for that, Jason, offhand? Or? Um, I will put it in the show notes because it's a little bit long to uh, try to read. But it is called A Quick Primer for Old School Gaming. It's hosted on Lulu. And uh, in the show notes, we'll put up where you can get that. It's uh, a great resource for someone who is... Uh, like I, like one of my first posts in uh, Dragon's Foot, third edition poisoned my mind. <laughs> it's, yes. it, it is perfect because going from third edition back to first edition again, you look at it and you go, wow, that's right, I did play that way. Well, basically this guide is going to tell you, remember, this is how you do things. 
it shows you that you back in first edition you relied on role playing with an E as opposed to role playing with an L. So yeah, I I got a hold of this actually only about a month ago. It was the first time I saw this PDF, mm-hmm. and uh, I have been running my first edition game here in New York for about a year now, and all of my players are people who started gaming later in the hobby, so they started with maybe third or even fourth edition. And this pr- this primer I'm going to be giving to all of them because it's actually helping me a lot in kind of remembering the difference between these. Uh, just to break it down for everybody, the, the essence of it is it breaks it down into four what it calls zen moments of old school gaming. Four moments when you realize this is different. It's a different game, and if you approach it differently, you're going to have more fun. So the first zen moment okay. is rulings, not rules. And that's the part where it's talking about in modern games, I'll just put little air quotes around modern games <laughs> in modern tabletop role playing games you have rules that are very set up so that you have skill challenges you have things that are preset if you want to uh, climb that wall you're going to use this type of a dexterity check if you want to open that trap if you want to do this it's a roll you're done and this end moment is pointing out that it's actually in, in old school you're going to be looking at does it make sense you have a referee that's going to make a ruling based on what he knows to be the general uh, environment that you're working in. Right, because first edition relied more on description and how you did things, not as of what role number you got to do the thing. And this is where I really love this PDF, and I disagree with it. Really? So, yes, because one of the things... Now, th- this is a really good point into looking at how different people play... AD&D. Mm-hmm. Everybody, I think, has something a little bit different that they get out of it. You know, just like there's miniatures versus not miniatures, and that's a topic we'll cover in a future show. But uh, there's people who are more rules-based. There's people who are more role-playing based. Uh, there's people that enjoy different things out of all of it. Some people like making all the maps in the game. They don't even care when they get to play the game. Some people just want to have that fantasy role-playing moment and don't care about whether they rolled the percentile dice exactly right. Me, I love rules. I love sitting down and figuring out exactly what it is that's being, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, uh, modeled, or what's it, what is it that's being simulated. And once the game gets going, sure, I can play loose and free, and I'm not going to look up every table every time, but I like to know before I play the game. I actually like to sit down and figure out on a pummeling grappling table if there's four halflings attacking a bugbear what's going to happen i don't want to just make a ruling i want to actually say what's really going to happen you want to know you want to know the outcome ahead of time you want to have things prepared you don't like to just do things on the fly is what you're pretty much saying for this yeah i think so you know i read uh, i've been reading a lot of uh, old interviews with gary gygax recently and something that i didn't know until recently was that he was an insurance adjuster, or uh, what's the word? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Whatever it was before he did the game, and so it gave me a lot of insight into how he created some of the rules. He really did try to figure out some sort of simulation of reality, not perfect, but something hmm. in figuring out the, the the possibilities for something happening. So, 
you know, if you're just making a ruling, okay, you could say here comes a bunch of let's take the halflings versus the bugbear. Okay. You've got you got a bunch of little halflings and they're going to try to take down a bugbear, wrestle him to the ground. Okay. Well, if you haven't really sat down and model out the rules for it, you can think about it and you can probably come up with a pretty good ruling on the spot, right? You can probably decide well, they're little guys. I think four of them could probably do it. Sure, roll. You know, I'll give you a twenty percent chance of doing it. In numbers, yeah, I would say they have a good chance of doing it by themselves. No, but go ahead. Perfect. Yeah, per- and it's it's perfectly fine. I mean, it's going to keep the it's going to keep the action going. Mm-hmm. It's going to get everything going along. And if you play that way, you're going to have a great time. But if I know that there's going to be an encounter like that coming up. For me as a DM, it's actually really fun to sit down and start pulling out the calculator and actually thinking, okay, what are they? What's their odds? What are they really going to need to do this? So um, okay. I did that. Okay. <laughs> I did that just the other day, and after working out the tables the way that they are in the DM's guide, and actually taking all these things into account and deciding, okay, weight, weight can stack up. Height, no, you can't. You're not going to stand on each other's shoulders. I managed to work out some odds that I thought were pretty darn realistic, and if it comes up in the game, yeah, it's going to look like it's just a roll. Hmm. But for me, it's fun to actually figure those things out ahead of time. Well, this is a good example of different style of DMing of, of DMs, actually, right here. You, for example, want to figure these things out, let you have fun doing this. You like to plot these things out, as opposed to me, I really don't want to take the time to do that. I like to focus more on the, the story side of things and just let things go on the fly, I'll make a rule on the fly. I mean, there's different styles of DMing for each person. That's a, These are perfect examples. And I think that's one of the things that is so good about first edition, is that to me, it's really a lot more open to all the different styles of play that are out there. Definitely. Not just for DMs, but for players. Everything is, yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you know, if, 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 uh, if you have a game that's going on and somebody says, I want my character to be able to go dissect the monsters that she kills so that she can learn more about them so she gets a chance to do more damage next time. You know what? House rule it. Go for it. If that's what makes your game fun, then the rules here really give you that that possibility. To me, it's kind of like an operating system. And, mm-hmm. and, and if you compare them to operating systems, first edition is more like Linux. It's open source. You can get in there. You can mess around with it. You know why it was made the way it's made because if you read the books they go right ahead and explain what they were thinking when they came up with these rules so if you look at it and you think my players don't care about that I need a more fun way to do it you can mess with it and you're going to know what you're doing hmm. well that would been a bad point uh, what's, the, uh, what's the second uh, uh, feature on that uh, guide <clears throat> so the second zen moment is That's player zen. skill Player skill, okay. not, not character abilities in other words, if you're playing a dwarf with an intelligence of eight, mm. you don't have to be that stupid. And You don't? You don't. <laughs> <laughs> and it'd be pretty hard to do. I mean, well, I don't know. Eight actually isn't well, that have stupid. Have you seen really. some of the people? No, never mind. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but conversely, if you are playing a halfling with an intelligence of 18 mm-hmm. um, but you as a player just aren't that bright the DM doesn't have to give you automatic gimmies just because your player character sheet says that you're smarter than the player No, it's a lot about the skills it's, it's a lot about actually getting by on your wits it's how you play your character how you come across well in a 
in another game that I played at Gen Con this year, and I actually I don't remember the system, but it was a I think it was a D twenty system. Okay. But uh, in a game that I sat in, there were all of these things going on where. Uh, we would come up to a guard, and we'd have to try to get our, to work our way past the guard and talk our way past him. And it was a roll. It was a bluff check. It was a, you know, roll to see if if uh, I can fool him. Yep, yep, you fooled him. Okay, go ahead. So you pretty much could have said anything. You could have said the sky's blue. Oh, I fooled him. I'm going past him. That was the point. It was a dice roll. That's oh, all geez. it was. And what they're saying here. Um, is that it's a lot more about about your wits. So the example that's in this PDF is, uh, I think they say that the pit trap is mm-hmm. the example. Yeah. So uh, in a modern game situation, maybe you come in and you say, all right, we're going to go down the hall. I'm checking for traps all the way. Roll to check for traps. You found one. Okay, it's a pit trap. All right, I'm going to disable it. Roll to disable it. You've done it. Go ahead. In an old school game, you're coming into a hallway, and it's kind of dark. The stone floor is in front of you, and what do I see? Well, you see you know, stones. Well, do I see a trap or anything? Well, it's dark. I mean, you really wouldn't be able to tell you know, what, what you're looking at. Okay, uh, do any of the stones look different? Again, it's dark. I can't really, you know, there's cracks everywhere. Oh, well, what okay, you would do next is start tapping your stick around, right? Tapping your stick around, or in the example they gave, uh, the player pours some water out on the floor and sees that it pools in a different way. Aha, there must be something there. Well, I'm going to disable it. How? How are you going to disarm it? It's, it's a pit trap. What are you going to do? And that's where the player has to say, okay, well, you know, I push it with my stick, I do this. You know, you actually have to think about what it is that you would do in these situations. As opposed to just relying on the roll, oh, you did it, goodbye. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's always going to be some things that you're not going to get into complete minutia over. You know, if you're disarming a poison needle trap in a chest, okay, the player doesn't have to go take lock-picking courses in real life. <laughs> but you get the idea. Yes. But that's so, what, but that's what third edition and the later editions have done to uh, role playing in the games, making it into role playing. So, yeah, and I think that's what you meant when you used the R O L L instead of the R O L E. Yeah, because first and, edition is relying on the role playing as opposed to the role playing. It, and you know, I think that's a really good distinction because I think when some people hear role playing with an you know role playing a role that type of a thing, mm-hmm. it can intimidate some new players because. You don't want to come in, and if you've ever sat at a table that has a whole bunch of people that you know you don't know them, and you're suddenly joining the group, and you've got to you know get in character and join that whole, it's tough. That's intimidating. But I think that that's it. Doesn't have to be that far. I mean, I know that in our game, we let it come kind of naturally. You know, we we don't come in and start putting on our voices or doing anything like that. We're like, okay, this is my character. I'm I'm speaking in the first person rather than the third, so I'll I'll give it that much. And, you know, once you're a few minutes into the game, you just kind of start naturally falling into that rhythm of thinking like the character and doing those things. But you don't have to. And if there's somebody who's listening who's thinking about playing first edition and maybe they aren't such a role player in that sense, they're not theatrical or they're not the big uh, attention person in the room, 
it's okay because you don't have to turn into Gord the Mighty the moment you sit down. <laughs> no, you could just yeah. play and have fun. It's not I, I, when I say role playing. I don't mean by Hark, uh, the guy at the window or something like that. I mean more of just like well, describe what you're doing. To, you know, yeah. Tell me what you're doing, not just I disarm the trap. Okay, roll. There's my role. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to turn into a Ren Fair. No offense to Ren Fair people, I love you all. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No. But no. it doesn't have to be like that. It's perfectly fine to be like, well, my guy walks up to the stone and taps it with his stick twice, checks the wall here. That's fine. Yeah. Nothing wrong with and that. I, I, and it's easier to do it when you're in a world where things are a little bit familiar and that leads us to the third zen moment heroes mm-hmm. not superheroes nice segue. so first edition it thank you <laughs> first edition is a human sized world you're encouraged to play a human character i mean you can choose a demi human such as a dwarf or an elf but there's restrictions on those classes that make them less attractive to players and when you're first level you're going out in the world hardly better than a regular person and when you reach the top of your game, you're not Superman. I mean, again, I'm going to just go straight from the PDF here, but you're not becoming Superman. You're becoming Batman. Oh. You're, you're, you're getting more things. You're, 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 you're training up and having more skills, but you don't have powers. You don't have <laughs> superhuman strength and the ability to lift houses off the ground with your hands. It's, it's just not like that. It's, it's a real situation, and so you can think about how you would actually react in that situation because you can relate to it. Right. It's the amount of things that you get along the way that help you accomplish the task that you have at hand. Yeah, and I think this is a lot of where the influences that created the different games come into play. Mm-hmm. You know, the time between... When first edition was very popular, and now there's a gap. You know, there's the time, uh, sort of similar to the the gap that happened with uh, home console video gaming. There was a time where it just kind of died off, and then it all came back. Same thing with this. And so, in that intervening intervening time, some of the DNA shifted. Okay. The the games now are meant to appeal to uh, an audience that has seen some amazing films and video games and big effects and these kind of things going on and even uh wizards of the coast will say outright fourth edition was intended to be a bit of a compromise between people who wanted to do um mmorpgs versus a tabletop game fair enough Mm -hmm. but first edition was created by people who read Conan the Barbarian, they read Jack Vance, they were watching cheesy uh, horror films from the 50s. You know, it, it, it had a smaller, more human scale. Right. And that really comes through in it. And you can, it, it's, it's a lot easier to imagine yourself in a sort of Robert Asprin type of a world when you're playing first edition than it is in, say, fourth, where it's just more bombastic. <laughs> I guess. Okay. Um, and 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 that's and that's the third Zen moment. Wow, the fourth. fourth and final Zen moment, and this is probably my absolute favorite because it gets all of my fourth edition players so upset when they play first edition. <laughs> is 
forget game balance. Mm-hmm. It's out. You know, there's no... Uh, well, I was going to say there's no guide to how to create a level-appropriate encounter, but actually I found one in uh, Dragon Magazine from 1985 recently. But it's not in the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the point is that when you are going out into the wilderness as a young rogue trying to make your way, the wilderness is not going to present you with level-appropriate challenges. Oh. It's dangerous, and sometimes you got to run away. Uh, it's the first thing that my players learned uh, when they were used to playing in a, in a world where, you know, this monster is going to be okay for me. He won't be too smart. He won't be too tough. I'll be able to take him on so I can advance to the next level. And then all of a sudden, they found themselves trying to swim in the ocean because they had just been thrown off of a ship. <laughs> so. Well, that, that brings me back to just the thought while you were saying that about when I just started bringing First Edition back to my group. And they were so used to playing the more modern edition that, you know how you said you walk out into the wilderness, not everything's going to be level appropriate to you. They ran into uh, a couple things that were, you know, higher level than them, obviously, because they were just stupidly running around the forest. And, you know, <laughs> what happens when you run around the forest? The DM goes, <laughs> and yes. rubs his hands together like that evil villain with the mustache. And uh, they ran up against something. They were like, I attack it right away. It's like, all right, go ahead. A couple of swipes in, they realized they weren't really doing much. And it was just like, oh. And one of the players wound up dying. And, yeah. like, and they looked at me and they're like, I just died. I'm like, well, that's because you stupidly ran against it. You should have run when I said, do you want to run? <laughs> and they were like, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> now they now they play more like that now because they just weren't used to it. They used to everything that was skill level appropriate. So. And, you know, I, I feel a little bit bad throwing – I've definitely thrown a few things at my players which just didn't make it fun for them. I was, I was uh, being the evil DM, and I will totally <laughs> admit to that. And, you know, it, it's a DM's role to learn what's making them have fun. But, you know, it's the player's role to remember uh, whose who's world they're playing in, I guess. Well, sometimes you've got to slap the hand, so – yeah, I mean, and that's one of the other things is that it's it's very much not a encounter based game usually. I mean, a dungeon crawl is fun, um, but even in a dungeon crawl, you're going to be spending as much time exploring the rooms and trying to figure out what is going on as you are in attacking the monster. Exactly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so that'll be the four moments of Zen, and I suggest everyone take a look at this guide, read it over. It's very helpful for uh, players that want to push their players back into uh, first edition, like set of mind, should I say, maybe. Sure. Okay. Yeah, it's it, it's a great thing, and like everything else in AD and D, it's guidelines, not rules. All guidelines and not rules. Okay, take a look at that PDF, download it, and uh, tell us what you think. Give us, write us in, tell us what you think about the uh, PDF, and if you've used it maybe with your group, let us know, rfistaff at gmail.com. Okay, and welcome to the Creature Feature Theater, which this week's our feature theater creature will be the cre- Creeping Pit. Wow. That- I love the fact that we just re-recorded that and you still stumbled over it. Yeah, nice. I know. Thanks I like it. Yeah. I think I'm going to like the name of this feature. Yeah, the Creature Feature Theater and with the Creeping Pit. Uh, it first appeared in Dragon Magazine 
I believe it was 101. Am I correct on 101, that? 101, absolutely correct. And uh, I believe it was page 44, uh, if I'm thinking off the top of my head here. 40-something, something around the 40s. Um, one of the best Dragon magazines, because it has one of the things I always looked forward to when they used to come out with, the Creature Catalog. This was, I think, Creature Catalog number three, and they had a lot of fun on this one. Yeah, this looks like an interesting uh, a creature. Of uh, basically, uh, it has an armor. It doesn't really have an armor class. You really can't hit it. Uh, it's kind of just like an open hole. And if you look <laughs> at the picture, it's like a black hole. Well, let's start with how it's created. Okay, because that's always a fun introduction to a monster. This monster is created mm-hmm. when a bag of devouring mm-hmm. is placed inside of a portable hole. Ooh. Yes, a little Tesseract action for you there. Yeah. So the Bag of Devouring, that's another uh, special monster that showed up in Dragon Magazine. I think it's a non-canon type of thing. That's cool. Uh, And I don't have the Bag of Devouring right at hand at the moment, but um, I believe it is something that looks like a bag of holding. Mm -hmm. And then when you try to put something in it, it devours it. Hence the name. Along with causing some damage to the person sticking their hand in the bag. Yes, if I remember correctly. Actually, I do have dragon number 89 here, but I'm not going to flip through. Um, that's another episode. That's another episode. Uh, the, so with a creeping pit, when it's first created for the first hour, it's incredibly dangerous because it is an open portal to the astral plane. Mm. And it's a one-way ticket. Oh, that really sucks. (laughs) (laughs) It really sucks. And it could be a very clever uh, thing to do. So if anybody is in a campaign and they find themselves with a bag of devouring, like somehow they manage to – would identify, tell you it was a bag of devouring? Um, Yes, I think it would. Uh, If I was – here's another thing. If I was a DM, I'd probably rule yes, it would. Because it would just be so much fun if the player characters knew that they had a, b- a bag of devouring. Yeah. Because then all you need is a portable hole, toss it in, instant gateway to the astral plane. So if you're fighting that demon and you want to make sure he doesn't come back, that's where he goes. After an hour, the creeping pit gets a little bit more benign, <laughs> but still bizarre. It is a hole that travels around. It's about 10 feet deep. And it will try to get under your feet. So wherever you go, you're not falling into the hole. The hole's falling under you. <laughs> I could see a whole Avenger that's running away from a giant hole. <laughs> it would be a great way to divert players from someplace you really don't want them to be. Yeah. You, do I want to go to that castle? Well, there's a giant hole in your way. Get around it. <laughs> <laughs> and the fun thing is there are ways to... Uh, deal with the creeping pit, and they're surprisingly logical. If you were faced with a 10-foot deep pit that followed you around wherever you went, what would you do? Um, I'd run the opposite way of the pit. And if you couldn't get away? I'd fall into the pit. You'd fall into the pit, but if you're trying to deal with it, you might try to fill it up. And you can. That's the thing. It's it's the sort of thing that you could actually, if you had enough junk and garbage, you could fill it up and render it more or less uh, harmless by doing that. Or there is one way 
that a creeping pit can actually be destroyed. By Oh, let me take a guess. Can I take a guess? Take a guess. Creating another hole inside the hole? That is it. You win. Yay! You have just made the creeping pit go away. <laughs> um, now, you are not killing the creeping pit. You're basically just closing up the tesseract. Mm-hmm. I think I can call it that. Yeah, sure. Uh, and it would be a very, very interesting adventure, especially if there was something that the player characters, uh, say, needed to get out of the pit or get into the pit. I'm not sure. I think you can think of a lot of inventive ways to put this into a situation. Well, uh, yeah, definitely. And what happens if my character gets stuck on the edge of the pit and wants to fall in? How do I handle that one? The roll, the rulings give you a avoid the pit roll, pretty much, or a jump out of the way roll. You got to roll a twenty sided dice. It's pretty much a <laughs> dexterity check. Yeah, right. Yeah. Equal or below your dexterity check to see if you avoid falling in. Easy as that. That's a yeah, and I, I think I'm pretty comfortable with that. Yeah. I mean, okay. I'm always a little bit <laughs> iffy about simple ability rolls because there's no actual, uh, there's no simulation model behind them. They're just a convenient roll. Mm-hmm. But if it if it keeps the play moving, I, th- I think that's fine. And you would take a d6 for uh, d6 damage for hitting the bottom of the pit, because there's usually some crap or junk down there. You're going to do that unless um, you have a magic item that has feather fall. Well, that yeah. might help you out. In any event, this is an interesting creature to uh, use in your campaign to prevent players to uh, actually throw a little, just a little fun, you know, in case the players are getting into a little low. might be a good idea to have people laughing, at <laughs> pushing each other into the pit and stuff like that. Oh, and there's one last little secret that the pit has, even after it looks fairly benign. If you fall in it, yes, you can climb back out, you can do those kind of things. But if you decide to stay in there, or for some reason you're not able to get back out, for every hour that any living or non-living material stays in the pit, there's a 25% chance that it will fade into the astral plane. So if you needed to have a way to get your characters into an adventure that begins in the astral plane, that could be an interesting way to do it. Yeah, not a bad idea. And we will post this up. Uh, we'll post up these stats for the Creeping Pit on our uh, on our forum. Not in the forums, just on our website when we get that up and running. Yeah, I think we're allowed to do that. Yeah, it's, it's just statistics for the monster. We're not going to actually take the published wording. We're just going to take the statistics for it, and we'll publish it on there so you can use it in your campaign. And we'll certainly point people to uh, where they can find these in the original source material. So if you're looking on eBay or if you are uh, buying uh, PDFs on CD or anything like that, uh, you'll know where to get it. Uh, Dragon Magazine 101. I'm not sure if RPGnow.com sells the Dragon Magazines anymore. You know, I don't know. We should find out. Uh, But I don't. You can get get a Dragon Magazine from NobleKnight.com. Perfect. There you go. Okay. Well, that'll end the Creature Feature Theater for this week. See, I didn't stumble that time. And uh, <laughs> next time we will take a uh, a look at the uh, Automaton. Yes, very much looking forward to the Automaton. A lot of fun. And now it's time for game mechanics. We're going to talk this week about combat, how it's handled by the book, and how we handle it as DMs. 
Well, a lot of GM, a lot of DMs handle combat differently. There's many different ways to do combat, but there is always just the one way. If you want to be one of those sticklers, or you want to be one of those, as we say, BTB by the book DMs, mm-hmm. how would we do that? Well, by the book, one of the things that is very different about first edition is that initiative is rolled for combat every round. And you roll initiative just once for each party. Because otherwise, um, as it explains in the book, if you were rolling initiative on every single creature, yes, it'd be more realistic. But if you've got 23 gnolls up against 14 fighters, good luck with all the dice. So you roll one die for initiative each round. And you do this after everybody has announced what they're about to do. And you would roll and my in my game at least it'd be a D six. Yes, it's a D six in the book. And the by the book way of doing this, I've actually made myself a little flow chart that I keep and I will put that in the uh uh show notes. Uh the the things that go through in combat. Mm-hmm. So by the flow chart at the beginning of the encounter, the first thing you do is you determine distance. How far are the two parties from one another? Is anybody surprised? This is D6s again, and we could make a whole separate section about surprise, but let's just suffice it to say that if one side is surprised, the other side may get a couple of segments of free action. Correct. Once the uh, surprise has been determined, then the players announce their actions, you roll initiative, the DM then, oh, my notes have my personal house rules on them, so I won't go to that. You roll initiative... Mm -hmm. You determine what occurs within the round, announce the results of it, and then start all over again. And that's basically how the by the book method would do it. That's now, the by the book method. How I was doing it, and again, this is my way. This is not your way, Jason, or the person listening's way. I am going to, like you said, determine the distance, determine if anybody is surprised. Uh, everyone's going to announce what they're doing, and then we're going to roll our initiative. After we figure out the surprise round. And then, uh, obviously, there's a morale roll if that's need be, but that's not usually the first time around. Right. <laughs> and then then what I do is I usually let people move first. Move your character around. Really? Yeah, I let them move first. And then I let them decide if they're going to do a melee attack or a missile attack to do it in that segment as well. And then I'm going to do spells. I'm going to go off. Hmm, okay. So, how do you determine when the spells go off? Well, I usually determine it by the segments listed in the book. If a um, someone has a plus six to their segment and they roll the one for the party, they're going to be going on a seven. So. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is a perfect segue into one of the things that I've brought into uh, combat. There was a great article that somebody wrote. Mm, I don't, I'm not going to try to remember what year, about segment of action okay. as, a, as a combat mechanism. So I've brought that in because what I want to actually know is what segment something happens on for precisely the reason you just mentioned. Right. If somebody's casting a spell that requires four segments to complete and they're being attacked, I want to know whether that arrow hit them while they were still trying to get the spell off or not. Right. Okay. So how do you, how do you, how do you deal with it? Well, I don't really get into that many <laughs> that detailed about it because I don't really worry about weapon speeds that often. So, 
Yeah, now here, here's where I totally go off the book. And um, well, we're, we're going to talk about weapon speeds in a little bit. But I actually do figure weapon speeds into my segment of action, even though the book says it's only required when uh, initiative is tied. So what I have is I have a little um, whiteboard, those little portable ones that you can pick up at Staples. It's like 8.5 by 11, and I've taped off uh, a grid on -hmm. it. So I have 10 segments uh, gridded off. And for anybody who uh, doesn't know how time works, uh, again, we'll we'll have a future segment on that. But essentially, there's 10 segments in a round, and each one is six seconds long, one round, one minute. So I have the round taped off, and the initiative roll actually determines the base segment for the party. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you've got two uh, parties meet in combat. They roll initiative. One side gets a two. The other gets a four. So the first side, who got a two, they're going to go first because their base segment of action is two. Right. And the other side, their base segment of action is four. Right. And then to that, I will add in things such as spell casting times. And I've actually made a little um, – I don't know where I got this, if I made this up or if I found it somewhere, but I have a weapon speed factor. So if somebody has a speed factor of seven, for example, it means it's going to take them two segments to actually swing that weapon. I see. Okay. So that what that basically does is it says, well, the initiative, the way that I play it, is just how quickly – did you get in on that? And then the speed factors come in so that if somebody's coming with a uh, a bardiche and they're coming against a guy with a dagger, the dagger has a chance of getting in there quicker, essentially. Hmm. It, sound, it sounds a little complex, but it actually works out really neatly because of, since I have the little whiteboard, as soon as everybody says what they're doing, I just mark what segment it naturally occurs on, read them out, wipe it down, do the next round. Uh, that's kind of interesting. You have to definitely post up how that uh, looks. Like maybe take a picture of it and just oh, so true. just so we yeah. can see what it looks like. That'd be kind of interesting to see. And again, I just want to point out this different DM stylings. I more want to get through the whole combat system as quick as possible without writing down as much things as you know, just to get through the combat. While you like to you know figure out where everyone is and what they're doing. Nothing wrong with each way of doing it. That's just different DMs doing their thing. Yeah, in fact, I picked up a uh, a tip from somebody on the Dragon's Foot forums recently who was doing something similar, but he was actually printing out pieces of paper. So I've switched over to that recently, and I'm finding it makes it go even faster. So I now have just printed on pieces of paper that I flip over, and I use them as my notes for what everybody's doing. And uh, one of the players in my game who is my DM in the other game uh, he was saying that he might start house ruling some of that into fourth edition because it gives everybody a chance to really feel like the action's all happening at once instead of the I go, you go, I go, you go, I go, you go. Oh, okay. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay. Uh, so that basically is going to cover combat and the basic mechanics of combat. And uh, next time, I know we believe we'll talk about unarmed combat a little bit more in detail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a different uh, beast in itself. A lot of people don't really use it. There are properly. many ways to do it. Yeah, I really don't have many ways of doing it. I have one simple way, but we'll talk about it in another show a different time. Let's move on to the Dragon's Horde. Well, 
welcome to the Dragon's Horde. And what do we have here today? We have the deck of many things. Oh, this is a classic. Absolutely. If we were going to start anything, it had to be on the deck of many things. So, for for anybody who uh, hasn't encountered the deck of many things before, do you want to give them a little overview? Um, no, let them find out. Flip open the DM guide, find <laughs> out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this deck has anything and everything. It's just this is like um, this can ruin or break your campaign. Yes, it can. It can absolutely destroy your campaign, or it can make it one of the most fun things that you've ever done. Uh, if you are a player and not a DM, and you don't want to be, uh, you don't want. This is a spoiler alert. We're going to be talking about what this really does. So uh, you may want to ask your DM before you listen to this section. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the deck of many things, when you get it, can appear as any type of a deck of cards, except what it actually has printed on the cards looks a little bit different. So you have sun, moon, star, comet, throne, key, knight, etc. Mm -hmm. When you draw a card, something amazing could happen. Or something not so amazing. Amazing for somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So let's go over it. Now, now, actually, the deck of many things, before we go into what's in it, I think it's interesting just how, uh, how much cultural currency it's gotten. It has made it through all the editions and all the different versions of D&D &D and AD&D, &D, and I'm pretty sure that it's been picked up by a couple of other systems as well. Mm -hmm. um, Green Ronin Publishing, who's a great uh, uh, independent publisher, all actually makes a deck of many things, a printed deck of many things that you can buy. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. Hmm. Really fun. So that can bring a little bit of flavor to your game. Instead of just telling your players they found something, pull one out. So let's see. What are some of the things that it can do? How about if you pull out the Comet? That's a pretty good one. If you pull that card, you will if you defeat the next monster you meet, you will instantly gain one level. Wow. Pretty good card. Now, as a DM, it's up to you to decide how you're going to introduce these things to people. It might be fun to just tell them, but it's going to possibly be a lot more fun to actually play this out and have them wonder, what did that do? And uh, you know, Also, though, I just want to point out the fun thing about the deck of many things is that if you do have a regular deck of cards, you can use those Oh yeah, as props for this, and and have a fun time pulling cards that in and out of a, a little like a little sack if you make it, or a little pack or something. Yeah, in fact, um, if you look at the DM's guide, they actually give you tips on how to do that. So, for example, the one that I just described was the comet, which you could have as the two of diamonds, according to this. Or if you pulled out the queen of spades, that would be I can't pronounce this the Uriel. Um, minus three on all saving throws versus petrification. These are sounding pretty... Ooh, that's bad. That's not good. That's bad. Um, the moon, queen of diamonds, you are granted one to four wishes. Oy. One to four wishes. That's another... <laughs> wow, man. That's Actually, yeah, the wish is a... Uh, it's a very interesting uh, spell. It does have a specific meaning in, in the AD&D world. Um... Or you could 
draw. I'm just looking through here for some good ones. So the King, of, uh, King of Hearts, for example, and get the throne card. Uh, you, ooh. you get a charisma of 18 in the small keep. I can't tell you how many times I've pulled that card out and playing the, with the wow. deck of many things. Now, of course, it doesn't say where the small keep is. Which could lead to a whole other adventure. That could be a whole other adventure. Um, but the one, of course, that is the worst... Well, maybe not the worst. I think there's... Isn't there one that eats your soul? The Void. The Void. That's right. Your body functions, but your soul is trapped elsewhere. And just so, in case you're wondering, you're out there, and you're kind of new to first edition, you're wondering where we're getting this from, if you flip open the Dungeon Master Guide to page 142 under miscellaneous treasure magic items, you'll find a deck of many things with a description... All of these cards we're reading, and they give you a detailed explanation of what some of these things do and how to use it. So, Yeah, and, and uh, aspiring DMs, new DMs, definitely, this is a reason that you want to keep your Dungeon Master's Guide separate from your players, because they could just flip this open and know every magic item uh, in the game, which is another thing that I've found to be a little bit different, going back to differences between editions, and I promise not every episode is going to be uh, <laughs> such compare and contrast, because really, we want to focus on what we're playing. But It's always one good thing to look th- at the future to see the past. So, Yes. Uh, <laughs> one thing that surprised <laughs> my players quite a bit was that when they got a magic item, they didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. They didn't know if it... They couldn't even find out if it was magic. So that can be a big part of the fun right there is you have a ring. Is it magical? Well, Why don't you put it on and find out? Yep. So that was that was the whole fun about first edition. The Dungeon Master guide was only for the Dungeon Master. The players didn't have access to it and they weren't supposed to have access to it, so Absolutely right. Oh. Well, anyway, uh, using this in your campaign would be, like we said, could be fun or it could break it. It's your decision if you want to throw this in. Just be careful you throw it in. Beware of the consequences of throwing it in because your players may just have fun with this deck. Be prepared to uh, house rule a little bit if you need to. And don't be afraid if you really want to change some of the cards around, like you think some things are way too powerful for your campaign, such as, uh, oh, gain a beneficial ma- magic miscellaneous item and gain 50,000 experience points. <laughs> or enmity between you and a devil. You know, maybe you don't need your second-level players to have a devil chasing them down. But then again, your second-level players probably shouldn't find one of these. So, I mean, yeah. we, said, we said game balance isn't an uh, absolute dogma, but, you know, be smart. Yeah, you don't want to be imprisoned, and that's the end of your character. So you could always change these things around. Just because it says it in the book doesn't mean it has to be that way. Very good. Moving along, we're going to head over to the Stickler's Spotlight. Ah, good times. Here we go. Stickler's Spotlight. Weapon speed. As we spoke about in the combat section under game mechanics, weapon speed. Well... Pretty much, what is the weapon speed? What are we? How do we use it? And why would we want to use it? What does it matter? Hmm. Now, weapon speed is probably one of those rules that is most uh, often found on lists with titles like "rules I never used in AD and D." Yeah. Um, I know. You know, for any of us who started playing this game when we were, you know, teens or preteens or anything like that, there were a lot of rules that just 
it was too difficult or just didn't make sense or we just went ahead without them. And weapon speed was definitely uh, one of those things. So the idea is that, hey, different weapons take different amounts of times to use. Makes sense. A dagger is faster than a two-handed sword. Well, obviously, yeah. Yeah. Um, And some weapons are so slow to use, and this is actually where it gets kind of important, that you really can't use them at all in a dungeon situation. So let's take, for example, the pike. Okay. Now, I know that a ranger that I played when I was 13 years old was definitely carrying a pike into the smallest dungeons and using it all over the place because I just looked at the damage it did and said, that's awesome, I'm going to use a pike. I didn't know what a pike was, and I didn't know care about weapon length or speed. I just wanted to do the damage, and the DM didn't care, and so off we went. But the truth <laughs> is, a pike is a big, long pole with a pointy thing at the end that's about eight feet long, yeah. and you use this in military situations, the point of a pike is you want to drive the butt end of it into the ground and point it at a charging horse, for example, because they you, they won't charge into you anymore. But if you try to carry that into a uh, dungeon, even if you could get it to fit, it's just not going to be very agile. It's not going to make a lot of sense. So if you look at the weapon speed on that, and I don't have my uh, weapon speed tables up in front of me, but I think it's something pretty darn slow. So slow that you can't actually use it within a single round. No, it's... it's, it's if, yeah, in the dungeon you'd be doing a lot of poking and that's about it and that's no fun. <laughs> <laughs> it could be fun but it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily work. No, no. Definitely. So, I mean, a pike can be useful, so if you think you're going to be in a situation where you're going to be charged by somebody, okay, have a pike, set it well before they get on their way and be ready for them. But if you're trying to use it in a combat situation, not so good. Um, And actually, this goes back to something that we should have touched on, but I forgot to, in Mm. the combat section itself, and that's what actually happens in a round. Okay. So so maybe we should touch this just for a moment before we discuss weapon speed. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Because what actually happens in a round, that's a minute of time. So you're not getting one hit in with your sword. The way it's described is that during that minute you have parry and thrust, repost, you know, attack, block, all these types of things and the question of how much damage you do or whether you hit at all is whether you manage to get a damaging blow in during all of that activity. So that's why the speed comes into play but you don't necessarily take it completely literally. Right. Um and it's actually why I was wondering about the move thing that you said, but we can go on that some other time. <laughs> well, I just like to keep things a little simple, and I do take some things from the modern day gaming and just throw it into my old edition, just so things flow better in my mind. Like you said, yeah. dif- different DMs, different styles. I mean, I'm sure people out there are going, "That doesn't sound right." Well, too bad. <laughs> Correct. Well, so so the way weapon speed is supposed to be used by the book is that it only comes up. Uh, in the case of a tied initiative. So right. if you know, both parties roll the same initiative, who actually struck first? Well, the person with the lowest weapon speed, obviously. Exactly. And so uh, that's where these numbers come in. So it, it can get a little bit academic to worry about whether a, a dagger's 
weapon speed is two and a pike is 13 or, you know, whatever they happen to actually be. You know, what, what's the difference between two and a 13? Who cares? Two's smaller. It goes first. Um, then again, but it can be pretty useful. Then again, Jason, if you have to figure in weapon speed, you have to have the other one that goes hand-in-hand weapon length. Yes, you do. And I think that one is actually really important because if somebody says that they're going to be pulling out a uh, uh, Bec de Corbin or something, <laughs> well, are, what, how big is this room that you're in? You know, True. Can you actually do that? And, and, let's um, go, and, and what go, is a Bec de Corbin? <laughs> offhand, I don't know, but it sounds like it's something big. Yes. <laughs> let's go back to your example with the pike. Yes. Okay, so you pull out your pike. I have my little dagger, and... How far are we apart? 15 feet? Who's going to hit who first? That is a really good point because you have to close to uh, engage. Right, and according hmm. to the speeds, if we're going by speeds, I'm going to hit you first. Mm-hmm. But uh, but if you factor in the weapon length, actually you're going to hit me first. I think that's almost fair. Right, Because if I have the time to react ahead of time, if I can get that pike into position, mm-hmm. then yes, I'm going to have it pointed at you and you come charging at me. I can shift it a little bit to hit you first. But if you are close enough that I don't have time to overcome the length right. uh, advantage, then that guy with the dagger is probably going to slip right past the pike and get in there. Right, exactly. So that's why when you have weapon speed, you got to have hand in hand with weapon length. It's kind of like if you've ever been uh, taught in a self-defense class. What do you do if somebody's swinging a baseball bat? You rush them because that way they don't have a chance to get you with this big long thing that they're swinging around. You want to close in really tight. So that actually would make sense in a oh. dagger versus pike kind of situation. You don't do a spin kick like Chuck Norris. If you can do that, that would be preferable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought it was that. So how do you handle it? Tell, tell me how you handle the uh, weapon length in terms of speed. Well, I would go with the – it all depends on how far away you are. Mm-hmm. If we're doing – if we've already established where we're standing and we're doing close quarter combat and you've got one of those guys with those big weapons – I don't care how long the weapon is. You're not going to be, you know, my weapon is a dagger. I'm going to be hitting you. So mm-hmm. your your pikeman's going to be like, uh, I have to step back to hit you. I think that ultimately this is where a little bit of common sense comes in. And, yeah. you know, maybe the, uh, the dice rolling isn't going to have to happen quite as much because if you know these tables fairly well, if you know what's fast and what's slow and what's long and what's short, you're going to make a common sense rule like you just did. Yeah. So that goes again, common sense. Weapon speed, weapon length, use common sense. Now, there's some people that are listening that are probably uh, getting a little bit upset as I start (laughs) mentioning the idea of people actually choosing who they're going to hit in a melee. Oh, really? Because that's one of the other differences if you go by the book. Mm -hmm. And I like to think of myself as a very by-the-book DM, but this is another place where I go off-book. Okay. Uh, If you go by the book in a melee you don't really get to choose your target. Okay. Everything's happening at once. If you're all in close quarters, you have just as much of a chance of hitting the guy on the left as hitting the guy on the right. I don't actually know anybody that plays plays it that way, and I would love to hear from somebody 
who does. So if anybody's listening that does play it that way, write in and tell me why I'm wrong. And that is RFI staff. That's RFI staff at gmail.com. Write in and tell us what you do as far as weapon speed, length, and how you handle your combat situations. Well, that's going to move us into the library where we're going to pull out an interview. Um, no, actually, no. we don't have... Ne- that's next week. I apologize, folks. <laughs> Uh, I think we have uh, a look at a book by George Stone, a glossary of the construction and decoration and use of arms and armor. I believe you picked this up, Jason, right? I've been looking for this for a while, ever since I read an interview on, uh, I think it was on N-World, where Gary Gygax mentioned that this was the book that he used as the source material for determining a lot of the things we were just talking about in terms of speed and length and what weapons do what and what armor looks like what. It's a book that was written in uh, 1937, 1938, I'm not sure which. And George Cameron Stone was a collector of antique weapons and armor and decided to sit down and create the definitive work and so called it, and this is a long one, a glossary of the construction, decoration, and use of arms and armor in all countries and in all times, together with some closely related subjects. Wow, that's one heck of a title. Yes. So it probably didn't have its own custom URL at the time. (laughs) Uh, But I love this book. First of all, the book weighs about 10 pounds. I'm going to drop it on the table. Wow. book. Yes, I love this thing. It has a beautiful cover. Uh, just sitting on your desk, people are going to want to come over and open this up. I'm thinking about getting one of those dictionary stands for it so that I can have it just sitting around. And uh, it is exactly what it says. The title does not lie. This book is about 700, 800, no, about 700 pages wow. of photographs and detailed descriptions of everything from uh, – I'll just flip to a few pages here. I'm looking at the Hachiman, which is – the post posthumous name under which the Emperor Ojin was deified as the god of war. Oh. And then it becomes a type of armor in I, Japan. I, I thought that was a type of Pokemon you were saying for a second there. It could have been. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's an entire section on pikes and all the different types of pikes that are available. If you've ever wondered exactly what a halberd is or a halberd, halbart, or halberd. Uh, some beautiful pictures and descriptions of that. You can see how these things were actually made. Um, and one thing that was very useful to me as a DM was the section on mail. So that's something that people often ask about uh, in AD&D or any uh, swords and sorcery type of role-playing game is what is this armor actually like? You know, we've got armor classes. Uh, we've got descriptions right. of them in general. But if somebody were to say, I thrust a dagger through his armor, um, what's that stuff really constructed like? Well, in here, you have detailed uh, photographs and diagrams that show all the different ways the chainmail was constructed in different centuries and in different countries. So uh, in some places, you see it's very large gaps, and, and you can see the rings uh, spread apart so that you could imagine somebody could easily get uh, something in there and kind of open it up with a, a crowbar type of thing. Um, in other places, it is so tightly 
uh, wound that – or not wound, but um, constructed, whatever, mm-hmm. that really nothing's going to get through. And in some of them, you can see how they would be stronger than others just depending on the way the mail was made. So, you know, it's the kind of thing that if you are just interested in uh, rolling to hit and moving on, maybe it's not that that exciting. But if you really want to know what's going on when somebody throws a mandaya knife or what exactly a pole arm looks like depending on what uh, part of Greyhawk you happen to be in at the moment. This is a great way to bring a lot of realism uh, into your game. Well, this sounds like an excellent find. Uh, Actually, I'm kind of interested in seeing a picture of this book. Uh, I will definitely take a look on Amazon for this and I will put up a link. If I find one, I doubt there will be one since it's such an old tome of a book. I managed to uh, pick one up at a used bookstore here in New York where I had asked the uh, the owner to give me a call if he ever saw it, and when he did, I was down there with cash in hand right away. Hmm. Um, what, what is, uh, if I can ask, what is one? What does that book go for around price range? It really wasn't bad. I think I paid about thirty dollars. Oh, okay, that's not bad. You know, it's no, it's not a rare book. I mean, not in the sense. Uh, in the sense that a rare book would cost you large amounts of money. Right, um, right. It's simply one that's a little bit harder to find. Um, so it's a I'm nice just, little add-on to adding some flavor to your game so people can see what they're actually using in their game. Exactly. And, you know, it's just a lot of fun if you're the sort of DM that likes to really uh, create your own worlds. Maybe you want to create your own weapons. And there's a lot of things that are listed in here that are not spec'd out anywhere in a DM's guide or a Dragon magazine, but they're so well described that you could easily uh, determine some of those stats for yourself and really surprise your players when they get a hold of one of these. Okay, cool. Well, uh, if you can uh, just grab us a a snapshot of that, too, and post that up on our website when we get around to that, putting that up, I'd like to see what that looks like. I sure will. Sounds like a great find. Uh, if you want to take a look at that, that was by George Stone, a glossary of the construction, decoration, and use of arms and armor. And in all countries and in all times. <laughs> all countries and in all times. If you could find that Together book. Together with some closely related subjects. Anything else that I miss? <laughs> <laughs> it's got a really long title. I'm sure any book finder collector would be like, oh, yeah, I know that book. And it's got a really great section in the back where the uh, author – clearly had gotten into a fight with his publisher so just reading the publisher's note at the end where he apologizes for the things he got wrong obviously because the author had negotiated that apology into the book almost worth it just for that oh wow okay i gotta take a look at this okay so take a look at that book and let us know what you think about that book if you do have the book or you found the book or just want to know more about the book rfistaff at gmail.com now that's going to move into our final segment of the week, uh, the find of the week. Uh, you said, Jason, you were scouring the internet and you had found um, something on eBay. Was the original uh, D&D white box at sixth printing? Okay, and uh, it is on eBay. I don't have a link because it's kind of a, a big link, so we could probably put that in the iP- on the uh, show notes. Actually, on the show itself. If yes. You want to take a look. So at we'll that. we'll put this up. Our our find of the week is an original. D&D white box set. As you say, it's the sixth printing. And this one is 
unusual because it's in very fine condition for mm. something this old and this rare that people didn't think to always hold on to at the time. It's uh, very unusual to find one in this condition. You'll often spend five or six hundred dollars mm. for one of these. I'm not kidding. Uh, and he's got a buy it now price of one hundred and fifty dollars. So if you're a collector, it's not cheap. <laughs> uh, just to get an idea offhand, the product ID is two thousand two G. So anyone out there is looking at links for TSR products two thousand two G, and you'll get a little picture of it until you can get yes, the actual link. But uh, it's going for one hundred and fifty bucks. Yeah, and this one, as I said, it's in very fine condition. Actually, and now that I'm looking at it, he's got three of them. So. Uh, Christmas wow. is coming up, so if you've got a collector that you're buying for that uh, is worth $150 <clears throat> to you, or if yeah. you think this show is so great that you'd like to send it to me, hey. you can do that. Oh, yes. Well, well, there is three available, <laughs> so you can you can buy one for the loved one in your family and one for myself and one for Jason. Okay, folks, that'll wrap things up for this week. This has been the Role for Initiative podcast. Uh, you can contact us on rfistaff at gmail.com. Give us your thoughts. And that'll conclude things for this week. I am your host, DM Vince. And I'm DM Jason. Have a good week, folks. Roll for initiative.